Okay, if you would please open up to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. I'll be reading Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, first and foremost, I ask that you, in the midst of this sickness, help me. Let nothing of your spirit, of your word, the preaching of it be hindered. And allow me as your vessel to represent this, this text, what this book of Acts as an overview is about. May we see it. May we love that you had it written. Glorify your Son in us, your people, by the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act to the glory of his name. Amen. Amen. So, this is the beginning then, this morning, of our journey through the Acts of the Apostles, this New Testament writing. If you open up your New Testament and turn to this document called Acts and rip it out, you'll be left with almost no context to understand and to grasp the New Testament epistles. What we have before us in this document is a brief and a flowing summary of the first 30 years of the church from Jesus' resurrection and ascension in AD 33 to Paul in prison in Rome in the year AD 62. The writer is documenting Jesus' promise when he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And when Jesus said that in context, it is Peter saying, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you got it. That's objectively true. But the reason you know it it's because my Father revealed it to you. And what the writer is doing here is showing that promise is coming true as the objective reality of the gospel message of Jesus' death and resurrection goes forth. God is saving people by the Spirit in their hearing of it. Acts is not a history of a bunch of individual islands stationed out in the middle of the ocean, one person at a time who's become a Christian. Acts, it is a history about God creating the church. God creating assemblies of believers by bringing individuals one at a time to saving faith in the message of Jesus and inserting them as part of other members of the body of Christ through baptism and ongoing communion. The book of Acts is an extremely important link between what we have in the Gospels, the narratives of Jesus' life, his incarnation, his growing up, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. From there, if you only had the letters of Paul, 13 of them, and Peter, and John, and James, and Jude, and the book of Revelation, and that writing to the Hebrew Christians, we would have so many questions like, where'd they come from? This book is such a key link answering questions like, how is it that 
this small group of Jesus followers in Jerusalem spread within three decades throughout the Roman Empire to reach massive numbers of non-Jews and Gentiles in the cities. How is it that the, Jew, the, the, the Jesus-hating Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, became the bacon-sandwich-eating apostle to the Gentiles? Without this one book in the New Testament, We'd be scratching our heads trying to answer those questions. So you're there at the beginning. Look at the first few words. Starts with in the first book, O Theophilus. Okay, that, that's Bible there. That, that's the writing. If you look above it, you've got a title that says The Acts of the Apostles. That's not part of the Bible. That's not what the writer wrote. That was added later in the second century, a few decades later. The word acts is a really good word because this is a book about a lot of action over those 30 years that are covered. But the word apostles is probably not the best term. Because as we open it up, this writing really deals with only one of the twelve apostles, the original twelve, Peter, in his ministry. And then the second half deals with another guy named Paul, who's not one of the original twelve. He's the Johnny-come-lately apostle to the Gentiles. First half, mainly Peter. Second half, Paul's ministry. Okay. This is like a Jonathan Edwards title. That's why it's not the title. <laughs> they don't work. They're like, you know, book length. But this book is really something like the acts of the resurrected and ascended Jesus by the Holy Spirit indwelling His servants and spreading the gospel. There's a title for you. All right, so since it is the first week, like I always do when I approach a new book of the Bible, there are always a lot of foundational questions to be addressed. And so, we're going to deal with some of the larger questions of the book, like who wrote it? When was it written? To whom was it written? And why was it written? So first, who? When you open it up, look at, look at the first few words. Very unlike Paul's 13 epistles, very unlike James, very unlike the two epistles of Peter or Jude, where the standard in writing a letter then, in their documents, they start off with who they are, the person writing. Paul, an apostle. There it is. It's in the text. Here, doesn't say anything about who wrote it. Just in the first book, O Theophilus. I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the way we start off, though, with the answer to that question is one thing is obvious to all. In the style of writing and with the person Theophilus, that whoever wrote the book of Acts is the same person who wrote the third gospel that we call the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, say this. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And at the beginning of Acts... In the first book, O Theophilus, 
I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. Same writer of these two books, and the style is the same, and it's without doubt. So here's the question. You all know that we attribute it to Luke, and we call the third gospel the gospel according to Luke. So, but why is that, since it doesn't say who wrote it? Here's the progression of thought. First, whoever wrote Acts and the Gospel of Luke, we know the person was not an eyewitness in the life of Jesus and of his resurrection from the dead. But instead, the writer has relied on his careful study of the traditions which come down through the eyewitnesses to his death and to his resurrection to his teachings. Luke chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 is how he puts it. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, they have delivered them to us. First person plural, including himself. They've delivered them to us. So it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, Theophilus. So we know he's not an eyewitness. Secondly, we know the writer was a close companion of the Apostle Paul. We know this because of the internal evidence, what is actually in the book of Acts. We call these the we sections. As you read Acts, the writer is writing in the third person all the way up until chapter 16. They went there. Peter and John did this. Okay? Peter goes to Cornelius' house. Paul and Barnabas in the ministry, they went here, they went there, they went everywhere, they come back. Chapter 15, Jerusalem Council, he tells us what happened. It's all third person. Then all of a sudden, in the middle of chapter 16, it is, and then we went here. Then we did this. And throughout the rest of the book, Luke is writing in the first person plural, which is showing he is there with Paul on his missionary journeys. So he's a close companion of Paul. And so that leaves us with a bunch of potential candidates. When you look at Acts and you look at Paul's letters, like maybe Mark. That is the Mark who actually did write the narrative, the gospel, according to Mark. Maybe Aristarchus or Demas or Timothy or Titus or Silas or Epaphras or Barnabas or Luke. Fourth. From very early on, by the late first century, Luke has always been assumed to be the writer in the early church. And it was without contention. In AD 95, Clement of Rome, an early church father, quotes extensively from Luke, his gospel and his second volume, the book of Acts. Justin Martyr in about 150 A.D. attributes the gospel, the third gospel, and the book of Acts to Luke, saying, the follower of Paul. And the very first list that, is, that we have any document of, that's extent, of a list of New Testament books, which is in the late Second century, about 170, called the Miratorian Canon, also has Luke and Acts in there, attributing them both to Luke. So who's Luke? He is referred to three times in the New Testament. And here they are. Colossians 4.14. Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Philemon, verses 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends 
greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And then in Paul's very last writing before his death, 2 Timothy 4, 10-11, he writes, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Damasia. Luke alone is with me here while I'm in prison in Rome. And so not only was Luke, as Paul says, a medical doctor, but he was a Gentile. He's not a Jewish Christian. Now, the reason I say that is you go back to Colossians 4, and in verses 10 and 11, Paul first says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and Jesus, who is called Justice, those three guys. And he says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Which was very important for Paul to say, because there are a lot of false teachers roaming around the churches, mainly Jewish professors of faith in Christ who hated Paul's gospel. And he's saying, when it comes to Jews who work with me, those are the three. Other people go, we know Paul, we're sent by Paul. No, these three. Okay, but here's the key now. Right after that, in verse 14, after he mentions the Jewish Christians that he says, you can trust those three. Then he says this in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. They're both Gentiles. So, Luke was a close friend and companion of Paul and his missionary journeys. He spent a lot of time with him, numbers of years. We see him in his journeys for the few years before he ends up back in Jerusalem. When Paul is almost killed in the temple in Jerusalem, Luke is there in Jerusalem with him. When he's put in prison over those next couple years and sent away to Caesarea by the ocean, Luke is there serving Paul. When the, the, the Roman government finally puts Paul on a ship to go to Rome in order to be tried there. Luke is with him on the ship. Luke is shipwrecked with him on Malta, and he's there in Rome. He was a medical physician, and tradition says, which is not straight history, but it's stronger than, than legend. But tradition says Luke was probably from the city of Antioch, and died in the year 84, A.D. 84. And he was a Gentile, which makes Luke the only writer in all the Bible who was not Jewish. And Luke actually wrote more than any other writer of the New Testament. Luke and Acts. Volume 1 and Volume 2. So when did he write it? Well, he wrote it in the early to mid-60s. And the reason we get at that is this. When the book of Acts ends and Paul is still in chains in Rome, it's the year AD 62. We know Paul died, pretty strong evidence, Paul died in A.D. 67, executed in Rome five years later. We know that Jerusalem was totally wiped out by the general Titus, and the Jews scattered, which was a major cataclysmic event that Jesus prophesied about. 
And that happened in AD 70. He, Luke, in the book of Acts, and he just ends it in chapter 28, he's in Rome, mentions nothing about Paul's death or nothing about Jerusalem. So it's got to be before AD 67. So it's AD 63, 64, 65, 66. Somewhere in there when he wrote it. Luke and Acts. To whom did he write it? Well, you go back to the Gospel of Luke. Verse 3 is clear. To the most excellent Theophilus. Beginning of Acts, in the first book, O Theophilus. And now we go to volume 2, second book. Some people have tried to make a big deal about Theophilus' name. You can hear the word God in it. Theos, you can hear the word friend in it. Okay, Philem, friend of God, to all friends of God or something like that. But the evidence is just really strong when he says, oh, most excellent, which is the way he would address Festus. Okay, any kind of high-ranking government official. This is most likely, therefore, a guy whose name is Theophilus, he is a high-ranking government official. He has converted to Christianity. He has tons of questions. And Luke is going to sit down and answer those questions. And he knows particularly. You give it to Theophilus, he's going to have Luke himself will have copies made of what he's doing with these. And it, it spread early on what he's writing. He knows his audience is going to be much larger than one convert. And so then, why did he write it? What I mean is this. Any history is not void or it's not, not written in a vacuum with purposelessness. So much has happened in, in, in any situation in the world. There's always some kind of a focus. Why does one writing and what emphasis even a historian is doing? Luke is, is no different. So when he sits down to pen this, at this masterpiece that, you know, we think is long for a New Testament book, but isn't that long at all. What is driving him? What is he doing? Why is he writing this? What, what does he want Theophilus to get? And so for that, Daryl Bach, a, a present-day major scholar on both the Gospel of Luke and on the book of Acts, puts forth four main, not mainly the only, but four main thrusts that were driving Luke to write his two-volume set, Luke and Acts. And here they are. The first is this, to answer that big question. How is it that Gentiles can be saved, can be included with the Jewish Christians as God's people. So the, the curse keys even in Luke's gospel in a way that are not in the other gospels of what he gives us from Jesus, of this will be ripped away from you and given to a people you don't know. Luke's got this thrust going through the gospel of Luke, and then of course clearly in the way he writes Acts, starting from Jerusalem, it goes out to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. And he's got the whole second half of the book about Paul, the apostle, to the Gentiles. That's one of his main reasons he's writing it, to show how that works. Secondly, was to answer the conundrum that was happening in the late 50s, early 60s of the first century. Why is it that so many, the vast majority of Jews, not just in Jerusalem and in Judea, but throughout the diaspora, are responding negatively to the gospel? Why was God's plan the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures, the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David being rejected by the vast majority 
of first-century Jews. In the book of Acts, Luke is clearly showing it's not because those who have come to faith in the Messiah just says, we don't want anything to do with Jews or Judaism. He says it's the other way around. They are rejecting the Messiah. They are turning the church out and away. And that's the second thing he accomplishes in Acts. The third issue is, how is it? Theophilus wants to know, as a Roman citizen and a leader in government, that this horrific, despicable crucifixion that can only happen to non-citizens of Rome, Jesus crucified, how does that fit into God's plan of salvation? And of course, his first volume, the Gospel, is the foundation of that question. In Jesus' life and his ministry and his main purpose to come. And to lay down his life as a propitiatory sacrifice for sinners who would believe. And then Acts doesn't leave that. It picks that up and it is the main core of his death and his triumph over death in resurrection of what is called the kerygma, the preaching, the message that flows throughout Acts. What is this message that is creating these new communities, that is saving persons, Jews and Gentiles, from eternal wrath? And that's the core. And it, it, it revolves around the crucifixion and is confirmed by his actual resurrection. That's what Luke is showing. And finally, he's answering the question, what does it mean for people to respond to Jesus? What happens to them? What do they do? How should disciples live until Jesus' return? And that's laid out to some extent in Luke's second volume of Acts. So those are the four main thrusts of Luke's purpose in, in writing this. But let me so I want to say this clearly. In Luke's writing this valid, solid history. Scholars agree Josephus was a first century Jewish-slash-Roman scholar, historian. Luke was a solid first century historian. What he gives us here is a selective history, absolutely, with a purpose. Luke is born again. Luke believes the message Paul is preaching. He believes Paul was encountered by the resurrected Christ and Peter and the rest of the apostles after his suffering. Luke believes that. <coughs> but just because he does, unlike what some would argue, none of that would necessarily make him an inaccurate historian. So what I want to do then I'm going to go back to the beginning of Volume 1 and the beginning of Volume 2 real briefly and to show you what Luke really thinks about what he is doing. He's writing a history, not nice religious thoughts that someone might believe. In Acts 1.1, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now we're going to go on. But let's fill that in with what he also means with Acts, because he, he means it with volume 2 as he does with volume 1. Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things, <coughs> excuse me, of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
So here he is, 30 years after Jesus' death, writing this, okay? Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, so it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke's clear focus is to show that Christianity in his both volumes of Jesus' ministry and in the outpouring of Spirit and the Spirit's work in the Gospel preaching and Acts, that his goal is to show that Christianity is rooted in verifiable facts that have actually happened. Even though Luke never walked with or encountered in person Jesus' humanity, neither had Theophilus or any of us in here. Peter had, Paul had, John had. But even though most of us haven't, like Luke, <coughs> his point is, oh, you can be changed. And you can be saved personally by Jesus. But for that to happen, according to Luke, you must be persuaded of the historical events that are told. You must be persuaded they are, in fact, true. And that's why his good buddy would write in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, as so many have testified as eyewitnesses, and, and eat fish and teach for a period of 40 days. If that's not true, Paul says, then Christianity is a farce. And Luke believes the same thing. And that's where Luke's coming from. And therefore, this book of Acts that we'll be working through flies in the face of the postmodern relativism of our day, which is everywhere around us, that believes there's no such thing as truth. I mean, real truth, truth out there. Instead, there's just personal truth. Oh, you believe that? That's true then. For you, oh, no, I don't believe that. So therefore, it's not true because I don't believe it. And it's just everywhere in the air. You probably have family or friends like I do, or, you know, you came to Christ and, well, they're happy for you. It works for you. <coughs> I'm so glad you found your truth. Did you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and he's the Savior for your sins? It's great. But it's not my truth, objective truth for so, so many in our culture today is not even a category. This dominant philosophy is deadly to souls. Deadly. And unless it gets broken, it can't be saved. It's deadly because part of being saved by Jesus is to embrace personally, yes, subjectively, something that is objectively true. The cross is death. And that he actually did come back to human immortal life forever and was touched and encountered by at least 500 persons. Luke is absolutely convinced in the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's never apart from the truth of the message. 
preached. And this means that Christianity is not merely some religious philosophy based on the speculations of some great teacher or teachers. Jesus, a great one, and Paul, a great teacher. It's not what it is. It's about God invading humanity in the person of Jesus Christ and uniquely unveiling himself and accomplishing salvation so that he could take any sinner and forgive them of all their sins. And not only that, count them as perfectly righteous while God the Creator Himself, who is holy, would remain absolutely righteous and just while justifying the ungodly. We live in a day and an age where there's many Christians who speak as if the Holy Spirit's work is to come and replace evidence, replace biblical propositions of truth that are laid out and given to us by the Holy Spirit. In the Gospels, in the letters, in the history called the book of Acts. But they're more interested in saying, God showed me something new. Can't see it there. He showed me. That's Christianity. Just believe. Don't get caught up in trying to understand Paul's sentences or Jesus's recorded in the Gospels. Just believe. Okay. That's not the way Luke understands Christianity. It's not the way he understands faith. He does not say, I see you're troubled, Theophilus. you got a lot of questions. Here's my counsel. Just quit thinking so much. And pray more. And just believe. It's not what he does. <coughs> he says, okay. I'll lay it out for you. I'll lay it out for you. Be persuaded. And so Luke Instead of saying, just believe, whatever, he writes a 52-chapter book, two volumes, in order to give solid roots to the faith of Theophilus and any others throughout history. He, Jesus presented himself alive to them, his apostles, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That's Luke. That's what he's driving at. And so these two volumes of Luke, the gospel, in the first 30 years of the church, it's not as if the first volume is about Jesus' ministry and then the second volume is about the church's ministry. Not for Luke. <coughs> not the way he words it. But Acts is the continuation of the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit, empowering his servants to proclaim the gospel and spread it. This is how he begins our book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. He didn't have to put the word, and it's there in the Greek, Begin. All that Jesus 
began to do. And then he ascended. He's not done doing, is his point. If you read one sitting straight through this history that Luke presents here, presents us here, you'll become persuaded that God is at the center of these acts, these works. That it is the Lord, by the gospel message being preached in the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit working in the hearers of the message, that the Spirit of Christ is guiding, is protecting, is orchestrating the events that are laid out in the Acts of the Apostles. Luke sets that reality up at the very end <coughs> of his first volume. In Luke 24, 49, after Jesus' resurrection, right before his ascension, Luke tells us that Jesus said this, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. And so he repeats it, essentially, in his opening of volume 2. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus, right before his ascension, says... But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Luke does that on purpose. And not only that, what we have right there in verse 8 is the outline of Luke's second volume. It's like the table of contents. Starting with Jerusalem. Now you read Acts. From Acts 1 up into Acts chapter 8, verse 3, he's mainly dealing only with what's happening in Jerusalem with the Jews in the gospel message. Then, God's sovereign persecution that happens spreads the Jewish Christians out into the, the broader region of Judea and into the non-Jewish area called Samaria with Philip the deacon. And you see some Gentiles become Christians, and that's the second part of the book, starting with chapter 8, verse 4, to chapter 11, verse 8, what he deals with. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then the witness turns to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the end of the earth in Paul's ministry, which is the rest of the book stretching to unreached peoples throughout the Roman Empire and Paul wanting to get to Spain and to go beyond. But he goes first in every city, to the synagogue, to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. That's what Luke gives us. And in the midst of what we will be seeing as he unfolds this first 30 years is that the foundation through all of what is happening in the message that's unfolding is the eyewitness testimonies to the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so then the church, it's spreading. It's spreading through the faithfulness to the gospel, the good news of who Christ is, how he saves, and that he was raised from the dead. And that message goes and saves persons. And so Luke says, Assuming this is where he's going now, it's why he opens up again this way.
in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And that tradition from the apostles as their eyewitness accounts and the saving work of Christ on the cross for sinners, that is what drives the preaching throughout Acts. It drives the message and it drives the unity that God, the Holy Spirit, is creating in these communities of people as the message spreads. So let me just close in this first week to say that along with that very foundational key without which there is no Christianity, that is the, scholars love these big words, kerygma, it's the preaching, it's the message. Along with that, we will notice over the next 14 years, or however long it takes, Anybody listening? A giggle. Okay, that was a joke. Okay, all right. Thank you. There are a number of themes that run throughout that are very relevant for each and every one of us today. And so let me give you seven of them. First, throughout the book of Acts, we'll see that the sovereignty of God is behind the founding of the church and the spread of the gospel. And therefore, the gates of death, hell, Hades, will not then nor now ever prevail against the church. Even in the church's darkest hour. Secondly, the power of the Holy Spirit is given to every person who believes in Jesus Christ. If you believe, if you know He is yours, you must know that would be impossible without the power, the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. In some mystical, supernatural way in your soul. Third theme is that individual prayer, but particularly Corporate praying is vital for the life of the church. Fourth, preaching God's word is of foremost importance. First, everything else from it, through it, under it. The book of Acts itself includes many sermons and speeches. We got eight of them by Peter. We've got nine of them by Paul. We have an in-depth, long, penetrating one by Stephen, the deacon, which got him stoned to death. We have a short one by James, Jesus' brother. When you put all these speeches, sermons together in Acts, it covers 25% of the whole writing. The Word taught, proclaimed, is huge for Luke. And it is to remain huge for us today. The Word of God, the Holy Scripture unfolded 
our hearts by the Spirit attentive to be changed, sanctified, worked upon, grown, pent because of the Word again and again. Flee from religion that doesn't put the Word of God first. Fifth, we'll see that bringing the gospel to unreached people groups that haven't heard the gospel. There's no church, there's no communities, no assemblies, home churches or nothing. They never even heard of what the gospel is, that that bringing the message of Jesus to unreached people groups is the mission of the church. And it's there in Acts. Whether you're the few who go or the many who sin, by money and praying. In fact, that missionary endeavor, it is this storyline through which Luke is writing the book of Acts. Sixth, we are to see through this book that opposition and suffering are to be expected, particularly in faithful gospel preaching. We see legal troubles in this book, imprisonment, persecution, being socially ostracized, and even death. And all of that then and throughout church history and now may be the sovereign hand of the Lord to those who are His and are faithful. And finally, through Acts, we get glimpses of the life and the organization of local churches with their struggles and how they dealt with problems that arose. Through it, Luke is showing us Jesus is building His assemblies, His church, His churches. Both are used. And thus, for each and every one of us, we should always understand our identity with Christ as an identity with one of His many expressions in local places to the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the work and the power of the Holy Spirit that is so clearly laid out in this second volume of Luke's in chapter 2. That for us who believe, cleave to your Son and to this wonderful message of salvation in Him and Him alone, that we know, we just somehow know the testimony of the eyewitnesses is true of that resurrection. It's because you have sent the very Spirit of your Son to our hearts crying, Abba, Father. You have poured out the Holy Spirit. You have baptized us in the Spirit. Oh, Father, may we therefore this week as ongoing faith-filled repentant sinners walk in the power of your Holy Spirit from one degree of glory to another. Amen.